Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that you are in fellowship. You're walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ. When we sin, we break that fellowship, that rapport with God. And the way to recover is to simply admit or acknowledge our sin to God. And at that instant, we are restored to fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's good for us to be able to come together in this class to study your word, to reflect upon your grace, upon your promises, and on how we can take your promises and have them shape our thinking and stabilize our emotions and focus our concentration upon the ultimate realities of your creation as they apply specifically to our lives and the circumstances that we face each and every day. Father, we pray that as we study these things that God the Holy Spirit will use them to comfort us and we will be reminded of the importance of memorizing and internalizing these these passages so that they can be used at a moment's notice when we face certain tests of our, of our spiritual life, tests of faith, as James calls it, so that we can maintain our consistent walk by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, just a reminder, we're still in First Thessalonians, but we're talking about what it means to be uh, to have faith in the Christian life and the role of faith in the Christian life, specifically in terms of the uh, faith rest drill. This is a term that we use to describe the application of promises to day-to-day experience. And so we're uh, taking a little bit of time as we go through First Thessalonians to talk through different kinds of promises, different kinds of situations so that we can become much more adept and more skillful at using the faith rest drill. And part of this is just an application, as it were, of some of the things that we we learned in a Bible study methods class I taught before, and that is observation, interpretation, and application. We we look at the text and we think it through in the process of of memorizing it, break it down into its basic uh, uh, phrases and clauses, think about their relationship to each other, think about some of the synonyms, in e- even in English, for uh, words that are found in the text. If you have, uh, if you can get online, there are several online study Bibles that you can uh, take advantage of and look at uh, Greek or Hebrew words to get another sense of, of what these uh, key words describe. 
uh, that's helpful as well, just because it trains our thinking. Then we get, look at the context of the passage and what's going on within the basic structure uh, of, the, of the promise that we find in Scripture. And we did this last time as we were looking at Isaiah 41.10. Now, Isaiah 41.10 is a key passage for talking about this whole concept of fear. Fear is something that is so basic, so fundamental to everyone we, that, that we need to talk about what the Scripture says about fear and the solution to fear. And so as we look at Isaiah 41.10, last time we went through the basic structure of Isaiah 41.10, and we talked about its context, the, the warning that God is giving to Israel. Uh, back This is back in the uh, 8th century, and God is giving them a warning that is ultimately fulfilled in 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem, and Isaiah is warning them about this, this future destruction, and it's going to be in the context of that future destruction that they need to learn not to be afraid, not to be overwhelmed uh, with anxiety. And this is something that, that may seem quite foreign to us because they're facing horrible circumstances, and they're going to go through those horrible circumstances. And the reality is that when things go bump in the night and we're, we're overwhelmed with worry and anxiety and often uh, the boogeyman that uh, shows up in our thoughts at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning, doesn't ever actually materialize. Uh, we just worry about all the worst-case scenarios that, a, that our imagination can come up with, and so then we can't go back to sleep. And there, but the reality is there are, uh, there are boogeymen that are real. There are circumstances and situations that seem overwhelming and, and destructive, and we go through those. And if you just think, think about uh, situations and circumstances that many people go go through, whether it has to do with with medical challenges and facing disease that may uh, be quite debilitating, if not fatal, that may go on for some time, or financial disasters that may occur in terms of unemployment or in terms of financial loss or destruction that may come from uh, various things such as uh, hurricanes here in the Gulf area or tornadoes in, in some parts of the country, blizzards, things of this nature that can have such a tremendous impact. Uh, so many things that can come along, and the plans that we have made are, if not uh, not, needed, not that we need to modify them, but sometimes they're just, they're just destroyed, our hopes, our dreams, uh, because of things that happen. And you can just think about uh, Jews that were living in, in the southern kingdom and the uh, late Seventh uh, century, 610, 605, watching around them as they saw these armies coming into existence, these new empires rising with the rise of Babylon and the battles that took place uh, surrounding them, battles between Babylon and Egypt, and knowing that they would be overrun and that, that everything that they had given their lives to would be would be lost and how overwhelming that would be. And yet the counsel that God gives them in Isaiah 41 is not to be afraid, uh, even though they're going to go through this, the, this divine discipline upon the nation. And this is emphasized in several places in this, in this particular chapter. Uh, but God reminds them of his promise. And as we saw last time, there's the promise in verse 8, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. 
And this emphasizes, I think the term, use of the term Jacob is emphasizing uh, Israel in rebellion as opposed to calling them Israel, that Jacob often has that connotation because uh, the patriarch Jacob was, uh, the, his name Yaakov means a, a chiseler. If we go back to the study of Jacob in, in our study in Genesis, he was the person always trying to manipulate God, manipulate circumstances and situations and people to get what was rightfully his. He couldn't just trust in God. He had to try to control things and manipulate things to get what he wanted. And later he was finally uh, faced with the fact that he can't uh, overpower God when he's wrestling with God at a place called Peniel, where he met God, where it's called that, because there he says he met God face to face, and the angel of the Lord slaps him on the hip, and and this uh, uh, wounds him. And at that point, God gives him a new name, Israel. And usually when Israel, the nation, his descendants are described as Israel, that emphasizes the positive spiritual side of his life. Jacob often uh, emphasizes the nation in, in carnality. So here we see, but you, Israel, are my servant. That's Israel in a positive sense. Now we have this synonymous parallelism, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And the use of Jacob there reminds us, even though it's a synonym for Israel, and that's necessary in the parallelism, it also carries that, this connotation that, that at this point in time, they're not obedient. They're in, in uh, disobedience. They're in carnality. They're the descendants of Abraham, my friend. God is reminding them of his everlasting covenant with Abraham and what he has done in the past. In verse 9, he says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. This is talking about Israel's position before God, that that never changes despite circumstances and despite the calamity that is about to come upon them. And then God tells them, do not be afraid, verse 10. This is repeated again at the end of verse 13. Fear not, I will help you at the beginning of verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then throughout this, there is the a promise of how God is in the future going to provide deliverance for Israel, and eventually all of his promises will come true. So when we look at Isaiah 41.10, this is the command at the beginning, fear not, God says, and for I am, uh, I am with you. And so this tells us that the reason uh, that they should not be afraid, and the reason we should not be afraid is because of God's presence. He is the one that lifts us up. He is the one who is with us. And then in the parallel, we read in the New King James, Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. And this is the Hebrew word shatah. Uh, there's a t- little bit of a textual variant there. Some texts read shaah. Uh, I have the uh, I in there, Sha'ah instead of Shatah. Shatah is a synonym for fear, and Sha'ah is something that talks about looking about, but it has the tone of looking about in anxiety with uncertainty and instability. But the, probably the best reading in the text is Shatah. It's a word that means to be dismayed, to look about with apprehension or alarm at the circumstances, to be filled with uh, depression or discouragement because 
The circumstances of life just seem overwhelming. There doesn't seem a way out. There doesn't seem to be a way to escape. There, that, that defeat for them was imminent and they would, would indeed lose everything that they had. And what God promises, promises us in the scripture is not that we won't go through hard times. He doesn't promise us that we won't go through difficulty. Sometimes that difficulty is self-induced because of divine discipline. Sometimes it's the result, as we've studied through the um, failure of others that we're associated with in this circumstance. Uh, This had to do with the fact that all of the nation would go through divine discipline because the majority had been in spiritual rebellion against God. And so he tells them not to be afraid, neither to be discouraged or dismayed, to feel overwhelmed by the circumstances. And I think that's important for us to understand the meaning of this word fear a little bit because uh, there's a sense in which there's sort of a healthy uh, fear or anxiety ab- about life. If you're getting ready to give a presentation and you're going to speak in public, uh, you may have stage fright. Uh, you may be a little concerned, uh, a little anxious about what you're going to do, and that just sort of gives you an edge, pushes us to perform better and to do better. Uh, when you are, uh, as a parent, you're concerned about the safety of your children and what they're doing, it, it motivates and pushes us to do the right thing or be a little more vigilant, uh, a little more focused on what we're doing. That's not really the kind of fear or anxiety that we're talking about in these passages. These are talking about a, a, a level of fear that that really drives us in a direction to disobey God and to seek for solutions apart from God's word. It is more than just that sort of uh, level of focus, concern about doing a job or doing it well in one one arena or or another. And so the idea of fear or dismay, uh, I like the definition that uh, is in Webster's uh, uh, Collegiate Dictionary, says that dismay means to be deprived of courage, resolution, and initiative. So it goes beyond what I might call level one fear, which is just sort of a a real focus on what might happen in being... um, uh, uh, being driven to do whatever is necessary to make sure the job is well done to where this is a debilitating concept. It, it overwhelms us. It defeats us. It deprives us of, of what it takes to go forward and to do what we need to do. And it indicates that, uh, that we're, we're confused. We lack, uh, any kind of security and we just want to retreat rather than uh, rather than go go forward. So this is the uh, main idea there. So we need to talk a little bit. What I want to talk about today is, is this whole concept of fear. It is something that is part of every one of our souls is a problem of fear, the problem of worry, the problem of anxiety. I think that it is basic to the human condition, the fallen human condition. Fear is basically an emotion that is caused by the anticipation or the awareness of danger. And in some sense, we feel that our security, our safety is personally threatened and or those we love have their security or safety threatened. Uh, we can apply that to almost any area of life, whether it has to do with health, 
whether it has to do with family and the future, whether it has to do with finances, whether it has to do with our career training, whatever it may be, we can easily manufacture a lot of fear and anxiety, and some people are better at it than others. Some people this have this as the trend of their sin nature, and if they don't have anything to worry about and be fearful about and wake up and worry about at 3 o'clock in the morning, then they're going to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and try to and worry about not having anything to worry about. They're just constantly in that state, and that's just the trend of their sin nature. So we have to recognize that fear is generated from our sin nature. It is a mental attitude sin that is at the very root of all emotional sins in the sin nature. So we can think of other sins in the sin nature that are, that have to do with emotion, uh, jealousy, envy, anger, resentment, a desire for revenge, all kinds of different things that are emotional sins. But the root, according to Scripture, is the sin nature. And to understand this, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the episode of the fall of Adam, the fall of mankind into sin. And we have the story of the temptation when uh, the serpent came to Eve and said, well, has God said? And as soon as he says that, he's questioning the integrity of God, questioning the truthfulness of what God has said, questioning the accuracy of what God has said. He says, has God said that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, and the tone and nuance is that God's holding something back from you, Eve. There's something that you should have here that's really good for you. And... Um, and then, of course, we know how that the story ends up, and she looks at the fruit. She sees that it is good. She wants to be like God because that's what the serpent has told her, that God just wants to keep this from you. When you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she ate of the fruit, and there was instantly a reaction, and she becomes spiritually dead. Now, she may not have become aware of the that we have no idea what those um, what happened in terms of her thinking or motions or anything, but she then offered the fruit and enticed her husband, and it is Adam's eating of the fruit that is fundamental to the fall of the human race because he's the spiritual head of the human race. And then there, we're told there's an immediate consequence that they realize that they were they were naked. And they realize that something dreadful has taken place. And so if you look at um, verse 8, we read, uh, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and in the cool, cool of the day, which was God's uh, normal operation. Every day he would come and he would spend time with them, teaching them, instructing them on the creation giving them guidance, giving them uh, uh, ways in which they could utilize creation. Uh, many different things that I believe were probably discussed. We don't know how long this time period was, but it was certainly uh, a period of weeks, if not months. I don't think it was years. I think that uh, it was a, a relatively short time rather than a relatively long time, but we don't have no way of uh, knowing for sure. So God would come and... And he came into the garden in verse 8, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. 
Their first reaction when God comes, every day they would look forward to it, they would anticipate it. As soon as God would come, they would come to him. Now they run and hide. Now, the reason is because they have been exposed in the full riches and depth of their spiritual death, uh, which is described in verse 7, that they knew they were naked, and they tried to solve the problem. I mean, there was such an existential awareness of this new situation that they tried to resolve it in some way, so they're driven to do this. And so they sew fig leaves together. Now, that that implies some time is going by. It takes a a little time to recognize your problem, that all of a sudden we're, we're exposed here, something radical has happened, we've got to cover it up. We've got to disguise it so, so that we feel better about what has happened. And what we're going to see when we get to verse 10 is that they describe this as fear. When they heard the voice, the sound of God in the garden, uh, Adam says, I was afraid. From the, from the beginning, he might not have identified it specifically as fear at the beginning, but there was an awareness that something was different, so they had to cover it up. They sewed fig leaves together. That would have taken some time. Where are we going to get the needle? Where are we going to get the thread? Do we have to manufacture this? We have to go uh, take the leaves off of the tree. All of these things would take a little bit of time, and so it, it some time goes by for them to be a little more uh, self-conscious of the fact that something dreadful and terrible has taken place. So that when God shows up, just the sound of his voice, the presence of God in his holiness and righteousness pierces to the very core of their consciousness. They are profoundly and deeply aware in every aspect of their soul that things are not right, that they no longer have security, they no longer have stability. Uh, they are profoundly afraid. There's no longer any certainty in life. There's no longer any confidence in life. They no longer have really have the resources to meet life in this complex environment that God has has placed them in. And this all crystallizes as soon as they hear the sound of God's voice. Uh, you may think back to some time when you were a child and you did something that, uh, some act of disobedience to your parents, and then as soon as you heard their voice, you knew you were in deep, deep trouble. And that would just be a mild reflection of what Adam and Eve experienced when they heard God's voice in the garden. So they hid themselves, and this is a primary emotion. Often when I use a chart and talk about the sin nature, I talk about the fundamental sin. The fundamental sin is arrogance. But it, what, it, what goes along with arrogance is this whole concept of fear. It is apparently the most basic of all sins and the most basic of all insecurities. They immediately realize this. And so we need to think about fear in terms of its fundamental role in the makeup of our sin nature and our our soul. A verse that struck me years ago is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, which states, there's no fear in love. Now, most of us would think that the opposite of love is, fe- is hate, 
that if you don't love someone, you hate someone. But this verse juxtaposes fear and love, that when love is absent, then what is present in the soul is that instability, that uncertainty that comes as a result of the dread of of fear. And so John is talking about this in terms of the spiritual life. In 1 John 4.18, he says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now, the terminology here indicates it's an either-or, that, that what, what resolves fear is understanding God's love for us, and that as a result, we have to grow in our uh, and mature. That's that word teleos indicates that process of maturation. Uh, John says at the end, the last sentence, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It's not talking about perfect in the English sense of flawlessness, but in the sense of maturing in love. The more we grow to understand God's love and his grace provision for us, then we are able to to translate that into action in our thinking, and, and it removes that focus of fear and dread that is there. Uh, fear is just fundamental to human experience. In many cultures of the world uh, where there has never been any influence from the Bible, we think about uh, different uh, missionaries that have gone to different cultures, whether we're talking about two or three hundred years ago as Christian ministry, uh, missionaries penetrated into India, which was dominated by the darkness of, of, of Buddhism, the darkness of Hinduism, the darkness of these Eastern religions, as uh, Christians went into uh, uh, several hundred years before that, a hundred or so years before that, into penetrated Japanese culture and Chinese culture, finding the same things that were present in their uh, Eastern Eastern mysticism. They realized that these were cultures that were basically mired in. Um, and in a, in a circumstance and situation that were more primitive than than Western Europe. Now they may have had a few technological advances here and there that surpassed, but as a whole, when you looked at the culture and the mass numbers of people in India, in China, and throughout uh, Eastern Asia, they they had had no advance. In, in thousands of years, they had no cultural improvement. They had no techno, very little technological improvement. People lived as they had lived for, for thousands of years, and they were in uh, severe economic impoverishment. Now, when people are controlled by insecurity and fear, one result of that is we want to hoard what we have. Whatever little bit we might have, that gives us a sense of comfort, gives us a sense of security. We look to those possessions or, or those things as, as ours. And when a people, or either as a group or a person as an individual, is controlled by fear and, and, and desperation, then they, they want to protect what they have rather than feeling the freedom to reach out and develop and to risk uh, something else going to another situation. When we live in this kind of desperation and dread, we're unwilling to risk what little we have in order to advance uh, economically or to be culturally creative. And so these, these Eastern societies were, were stagnant. 
for for generations, for centuries. They didn't go anywhere. This is this was true in many uh, many pagan cultures. You have some cultures that had a measure of advance, but usually that was because they had some sort of of uh, uh, religious elite that further utilized that fear of the masses in order to uh, to enslave them. Uh, what we discover in cultures where there's a, a tremendous amount of fear that is bred by their religious systems, and Islam is one system that breeds fear. Hinduism, Buddhism also uh, capitalize on that that sense of fear, that sense of dread. This is why in the Eastern religions they want to escape this. They have no answer to fear, so you want to lose your consciousness of yourself and ultimately in in terms of their goal their only hope is to lose their individual consciousness in this whole whole concept of nirvana they lose that that sense of self whereas in biblical christianity the self is free to develop and to grow and to pursue freedom because there is love and and fear has been uh, has been stifled so what we can see historically and culturally is that numerous cultures that were in this kind of a fear grip uh, were insecure. They're trapped by fear. Uh, they didn't develop. They continued to live in the same kind of small uh, huts that they had always lived in. You see this in, in many different examples. Even today, you can go in many parts of of North Africa, many parts of rural North Africa, rural Middle East, and people are living the same way they did a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand years before Christ. There's no, uh, no development. Uh, when you operate in fear, there's no courage. Fear destroys courage. So there's no courage. There's no willingness to risk what is needed to advance, uh, economically to advance technologically and to advance in terms of your culture and to be culturally creative. It takes courage to dream. It takes courage to invest. It takes courage to change the status quo. And if there's not uh, a foundation of confidence, then you don't have the courage to do these things. And one of the, uh, one of the religious, uh, correspondence uh, doctrines that corresponds to fear is fatalism. And fatalism is a part of a lot of these other world religions. You look at uh, at Islam. Islam, everything is Allah wills. Well, if everything is, uh, is Allah wills and there's no free will, then why should we try to do anything? Why should we try to change anything? Why should we try to improve the culture? We just go along in the same way. And so this it becomes manifest uh, in a in terms of a religious doctrine in the rise of radical islam they just want to take everything back to the 7th century everything that that is modern everything that 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 represents advance in technology is all evil they want to throw take all of civilization back to where it was in the 7th century this is all part of fatalism fatalism is also present in buddhism and hinduism and there's no escape from this, and all of this is is uh, related to that core value of fear. And so when you have these kinds of fatalistic 
religious systems and thought systems. It prevents any kind of development, and it destroys the whole concept of personal responsibility, that we take ownership for our lives and we can make things better. So fear has... It's not just a matter of, of something that destroys our, our personal initiative. It also destroys cultures and cultural uh, initiatives. Uh, in these fatalistic religions, the one thing that you do have is people who seem to have some sort of uh, connection to, to the, the God idea, uh, whether it was some of the polytheistic uh, religions, animistic religions, Eastern religions, where they have many gods, the, the shamans, the fortune tellers, the witch doctors, the prophets, the sorcerers, the, these religious elite could then use that in a way to control people and exercise a tyranny over people. This is the kind of thing that developed in ancient Egyptian religion. It developed in Mesopotamian religion. It develops later on in Hinduism and Buddhism. And so we see that part of of man's makeup, in contrast to what the Bible teaches, is man is oriented to fear, and this is self-destructive. Whenever we cave into fear and let fear control our thinking. In fatalism, everything is controlled by some sort of impersonal determinism. Even in Islam, even though Allah is supposed to be a personal God, because as I've taught many times, Allah is not a God of love. We look at the Bible. The Bible says that it's only love that and perfect love that casts out fear. It's only God's love that can cast out fear. So without a God of love, there can't be any kind of um, uh, solution to the whole problem of fear. Now, let's just think about Islam a minute. Some of you may not have heard heard me go through this in the past. Islam has what is called a singular monotheism, a singular or unitarian monotheism, whereas biblical Christianity has a plurality. And we would say even in the Old Testament, there's clear, there's clear indications that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was understood to be a plurality, not a singularity. You have God talking in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. You have the Spirit of God moving on the face of the earth. Later on in Zechariah chapter 1, you have uh, this conversation between the Lord and the angel of the Lord that indicates that both are divine uh, divine beings, and yet the emphasis in the Old Testament, as stated in the well-known verse called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, is the Lord our God. It's usually translated the Lord is one, and that is taken to mean a singularity, but the uh, reality is that word, that Hebrew word translated one is a word that indicates a plurality even in a unity. Uh, when a husband and wife come together, when Adam and Eve came together, it said the two became echad, one flesh. And so it's not a singularity concept. It is a, a, a unity concept. And so in the Godhead, there is a unity of of essence and a plurality of persons. And in, in, in Islam, you don't have that. 
and Islam in a singular monotheism, a unitarian monotheism in, in eternity past before Allah created anything. Allah is out there all by himself. He has no object to love. There is no one to love. So if Allah is loving, and incidentally, that is never attributed of Allah anywhere in the Quran. Uh, there are only a few places where the word love is used in the Quran, and in those places it's talking about a person loves something or a person lo- may uh, uh, love or desire uh, God, but it's not never talks about Allah being a God of love. And so if in eternity past you have Allah, and if he's a God of love, then what did he love? Who did he love? If he didn't have an object for his love, then he would be, in order to be loving, he would be dependent upon something to love. And so he would have to create something or someone to love in order to be able to function as a loving God. That would mean that he would be dependent upon something he created to be who he is. That would mean that, that Allah is an inadequate God. Uh, the other solution is that he's really not loving, and this is evidenced throughout um, uh, Islam that Allah is a very harsh, judgmental, uh, vindictive kind of deity. He is uh, not even consistent, and so it is a religion that is based upon fear. Uh, animistic, spiritistic religions are also based upon fear. They, they're fear of the forces of nature, fear of the stars, fear of uh, the spirits, fear of karma, fear of reincarnation. Uh, these gods are re- rather whimsical in what they may uh, want human beings to do. One day they're one way, another day they're another way. You, you clearly see this in the in the um, inconsistency of the gods and the deities in Greek uh, Greek mythology. Now, this relationship of fear to the core of the human soul is something that is even recognized in modern modern philosophy. Uh, the uh, and by the late 19th century, we had the development of what became known as existentialism. And in existentialism, the most important focus is on the fact that, that man exists, that, that, that he is in some kind of existence. But in existentialism, the starting point of their thinking is characterized by this existential uh, attitude in man, and this existential attitude is sometimes referred to as existential dread, that there is a, at the very core of man's being, they recognize that, that as man understands his world, because there's no God, there's no hope, there's no meaning, everything just exists, it's just an accident, the only reason that we have human beings is it's just a result of some sort of accidental uh, uh, electrical discharge with a mass of protoplasm at some time billions of years ago. And so there's no real meaning or purpose to anything. Everything is just the product of time plus chance. And so we live in an apparently meaningless world, a world world that is characterized by absurdity, so there's no hope. So in existentialism, which I think is a pretty decent analysis of the fallen mind, man is is faced with the a core reality of of hopelessness, absurdity, and meaninglessness. And the more he becomes aware of that, the more dread there is in his in his consciousness. Some of the more well-known existentialists were Soren Kierkegaard, who's usually credited with the first one to really uh, 
uh, teach or isolate the, the issues of existentialism, even though he didn't use that term. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche takes it a step further. Uh, existentialism taken to its logical consequence leads to nihilism, which is just uh, the destructiveness of man. How do you even find meaning in life if there's no inherent meaning? Then you just assign it from your own soul. So, so meaning is attributed to a total subjective value, and so, so meaning in life can come from just doing something that you think is significant. Well, if I go out and commit uh, random murders, then I've done something significant. I've validated my existence. If I go out and I make a lot of money and give it to uh, charitable causes to benefit ma- mankind in various humanitarian efforts, then I've, I've done uh, an equal amount of effort to validate my existence. But there's no uh, overriding moral uh, principle to attribute goodness or evil to one act or another. So in existential thought, there, it, it, everything is, is morally equivalent. And the only thing that, that we have to assign moral value to anything is just our own personal preference, what seems to work or what uh, doesn't seem to work. So existentialism at its core is honest with the human uh, presupposition that there's no God, and therefore it, it recognizes the absurdity and meaninglessness of life, which leads to this concept of the existential dread. And as a consequence of fear, recognition of this, that this it drives, this is what motivates a lot of people in a lot of their uh, a lot of their actions because they are basically fearful because they have an uncertainty about life because they're overwhelmed by by this uh, existential dread uh, of, of insecurity they have to do something to cover it up and so what are we going to do to to sort of anesthetize our, ourselves psychologically from the reality of fear and so they they try to do this through any any detail of life can be elevated to the uh, height of deity and then focused upon whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pleasure, whether it's success, whether it's money and the things that money can buy, whatever it is, any detail of life can be uh, the focus of, of what we're using to uh, cloak ourselves so we don't come face-to-face with this sense of fear and dread. And this is what happens with any believer that wakes up in the middle of the night or you're going through the day in your life and, and something happens and somebody something comes to your attention. Uh, you lose your job. Uh, your health is threatened. The health of your children is, is threatened. Any of these things happen. All of a sudden, we realize how finite we are and how incapable we are of controlling the details of our life. So we have one of several directions to go, but basically we can either go in the direction of depending upon God that we may not be in control, but God is in control. God is the one who can handle the circumstances, and I need to let him handle the circumstances because I'm incapable. I'm not knowledgeable enough, but he's omniscient. I'm not powerful enough, but he is omnipotent. I certainly am not aware enough of what's going on, So, uh, but he is because he is omnipresent. So we need to recognize that what uh, what fear is is the ultimate mover, the ultimate motivator within our sin nature, and recognize that this is one of the most dangerous things that we can give into. 
Uh, we have the old adage that uh, we should not take counsel of our fears, and that is exactly right. We recognize that there are going to be circumstances that make us aware of these limitations and that we will be fearful, but that does not mean that we should cave into those uh, emotions that arise from uh, the uncertainty of certain uh, certain circumstances, and what resolves that is what we see in in First John four eighteen. There's no fear in love. The only way to remove fear from our soul is by having that close relationship and walk by the Holy Spirit with God, to be so focused upon God, his essence, his plan for our lives, and that relationship with him that we are here to serve him, that this drives fear out of our soul. And sometimes that's easier than at other times. Sometimes there are circumstances that um, that just seem to overwhelm us and that we let that sin nature get a hold of us and we just need to learn these promises that we can say at those times again and again to focus our thinking and to stabilize those emotions. First uh, John 4.18 goes on to say that fear involves torment. This is a word punishment. It's related to punishment. This is related to the consequence of sin and being spiritually dead and having a sin nature. So this is definitely a part of our, our the human condition as a fallen uh, fallen creature. And so we we have uh, have to the the only solution, which is trusting in God. Now, a couple of things that we need to understand when it comes to to handling these. Uh, particular promises. Just a reminder, step one, we claim a promise. That is that we say, God, you've made this promise here, and I'm holding you to that. I am, uh, for example, as we'll see here in a minute, in, in, um, as we go through these passages, we're to cast our, our cares upon the Lord. I'm putting this on you. You're going to be responsible for it. I'm not going to be responsible. Wait a minute. Give it back to me, God which is usually how we do it. And then there's this tug of war that goes on. And that may keep you awake a long time at night. I know that's happened to me at times because, you know, we claim the promise and then we take it back and we claim the promise and we just go back and forth for a while. And then finally, as we really settle down, then we we can do that by thinking through the doctrinal rationale, thinking through what's there. And then we appropriate, we make it a part of our life. And this is what we've seen in Isaiah 41.10. We fear not, we're not dismayed because we understand exactly who God is. We can just think through his, his attributes. This is one, one of the things I think is a great way to utilize the uh, essence box is to think through each one of these categories in relation to your problem. God is sovereign. That means that he rules over the affairs of man. He is the ultimate authority in the universe. He knows how he's created everything, and he is able to take care of these situations. He's righteous, so in his righteousness, he is going to have an ultimately just solution, which ties us to the next attribute. Uh, God is love. I am in the body of Christ. God loves me. He wants what is best for me, which at times may include divine discipline and judgment, because whom the Lord loves, he also uh, uh, punishes or, con- or judges. Uh, he's eternal life, which means that he is always uh, always in existence. He never disappears from existence, so I'm not going to uh, worry about God disappearing. And then we just go through each of these different uh, different attributes. So let's just review some basic points on fear. First of all, fear is an emotional sin 
that lies at the center of a web of mental attitude sins. Anxiety, uh, worry, uh, fear, the sense of being terrified, uh, resentment, discouragement, depression, all of these are all built upon fear. Uh, when we're di- when we're discouraged, it's because uh, we are afraid that we're not going to be able to achieve the kinds of things we would like to achieve. We've, we've been defeated, so the result of that is discouragement. Depression is often the result of realizing that we're never going to achieve some of the things that that we want to achieve, and as a result, we we feel a sense of hopelessness, and that's directly related to. The, uh, a subtle thought that, that we're afraid that if we can't achieve that goal, then we can't have stability and security in our lives. So it, 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 it's a clue to the fact that our mental attitude is focused on the wrong, uh, wrong things. A uh, second point is fear is a representative emotional, uh, sin. And it's a negative in our spiritual life. So if we're being fearful, we're out of fellowship. That is a really clear barometer. If I'm anxious, if I'm worried, I'm out of fellowship. I'm not trusting God. I am not in right relationship with him. So three, we can say that fear and the function of our spiritual life are mutually exclusive. You're either walking with the Lord, but if you're fearful, you're not walking by the Spirit. You're not walking with the Lord. You're not walking in the light. You're walking in darkness. So it's one or the other. Now, fear, under point number four, fear results when we lose focus on our personal eternal destiny and God's plan for our life. God's plan for our life may include going through some horrible things. Think about the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they are refusing to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed. They know full well that the punishment is going to be to be cast into the fiery furnace. And when they are outed, when they're identified and they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, he warns them of what those consequences are, and they say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, we have to worship our God, and we can't worship any other God, and uh, our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, even if we have to go through this horrible death, nevertheless, we're going to trust him. That's the reality for us as believers is, yes, those fearful things may actually take place, those things that that we are afraid of, those things that are the worst possible calamities may actually take place. But God gives us the resources to go through those difficult times, and these promises are part of that. Fifth, we see that that fear in the soul represents emotional arrogance. When we're afraid, we're saying, I really ought to be able to handle this on my own. That's the height of arrogance. We are not self-sufficient as human beings. We should be God-dependent, not self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is part of the core of emotional arrogance. And so fear is always a distraction to our spiritual life. Six, this is why fear sees the problem and it intensifies. Fear just focuses on the problem. Where faith looks at the solution and keeps marching forward to the glory of God. Uh, we have a number of different illustrations of this in, in Scripture. The faith of Abraham, that when he, he was too old to have any children, he continued to trust in God, and he did not waver in faith, Romans 4 says. Moses at the Red Sea is hemmed in. He's got the Egyptian army and 
and cavalry and their the chariots in hot pursuit. His his back is against the Red Sea. There's no way they can get across the Red Sea. He's got two and a half to three million Jews with him, and so he is going to uh, trust the Lord, and he tells the Jews, stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And so we see his he focuses on the solution, which is God, and not on the problem. We see another example with David against Goliath. And David's great battle cry was that the battle is the Lord's. And he went out onto the into the valley of Elah to stand up against Goliath, who has got all of the latest technology, the latest uh, iron weaponry, uh, iron armor, uh, going against him, and David just took a sling and five smooth stones. Now you have to understand that a a someone who was a uh, in, in in what would be light artillery at that time using a slingshot that they were th- they 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 would develop these balls. I've seen seen these in that have been discovered in, archaeologically in places. I've seen these in the Israel Antiquities Museum that these balls that they fired were about the size of, of, of a golf ball. And they could uh, whirl that sling fast enough to where this thing came out, out uh, at a tremendous rate. And if he hit Goliath right between the eyes, it would almost kill him. It would have a tremendous impact. But he's not trusting in the technology of his weaponry. He's trusting in the Lord that the Lord was going to give him uh, the victory. We also have uh, other examples. One I mentioned earlier, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, and numerous others that we could go to in Scripture. Fear sees the, the, uh, sees the problem, but faith looks at the solution. We focus on God's plan and God's character. The seventh point that we see here is that through the faith rest drill, uh, each believer uh, emphasizes in these situations the solution rather than the problem. We 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 look and we have hope. Faith leads to hope. Hope focuses on that long term uh, consequence. It looks at life in terms of the end game and God's ultimate resolution of, of the problem. And then finally, we see that in each of these examples, the the individuals avoided the distraction of fear. And they bypass the negatives of fear in order to have victory, occupation with God in the Old Testament, occupation with Christ for the church-age believer. This gives us our focal point in terms of fear. We are to be uh, focused on God's love for us and not in, not in our particular, uh, in our particular fear. Now, next time I want to come back and look at another complex of promises that we can talk about in terms of how to handle fear and anxiety. In Psalm 55, uh, passages such as um, uh, Philippians 4, 5, and 6 and various other passages, one thing I'll point out as we look at Psalm 55, sort of a preview of coming attractions, we have this tremendous verse at the end uh, that leads and is really the background for uh, First Peter 5, 7, and that is the promise, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, if you look at the first part of that psalm, this is a classic, what's called an individual lament, where David or the psalmist comes and presents a problem to God, 
And David is going through an emotional meltdown at the very beginning of this passage. He's having almost what we would call today an anxiety attack. He is so focused on the problem at the beginning that, that God just seems to be distant and unconcerned. And so he's pleading with God at the very beginning of Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer. Uh, I think that we, th- that sounds a little distant. We might say, listen to my prayer, God. And don't hide from my supplication. He, he is, he is emotionally involved in this circumstance. When we look at, at, um, verse three, he's surrounded by enemies. We don't know, uh, the exact circumstances of these enemies, but he says, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and in wrath they hate me. And look at his result because he's focused on the problem. He says, my heart is severely pained within me. I mean, it's like he's imitating a heart attack. He's just seizing up with, with pain and anxiety uh, in his chest. And he says, the terrors of death have fallen upon me. He's just terrorized. He's on the point of pushing the panic button, and he is overwhelmed with, with fear so much that, that it is affecting him uh, physically. Fearfulness, in verse 5, fearfulness and trembling have come upon, come upon me. He is so fearful that he is shaking as, as he faces the, the circumstances, and he's overwhelmed by horror. So, so when we look at, at, at the Bible, we have to realize these, these saints that we talk about are not just plaster saints. David doesn't just sail through these problems and difficulties that he encounters easily. They impact him just as much as they impla- impact uh, you and me. They cause us to think about we're going to lose it all. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be painful. God's forgotten about me, and we just absolutely get overwhelmed in the darkness of our fear. And this is where David starts. How do we get from there to where uh, we see David as that spiritually victorious uh, warrior going against the enemies of God? Well, that's how we use the faith rest drill. So we'll come back to that uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your faithfulness, that it is your character that makes a difference. As we think about history, we see the outworking of fear in cultures and civilizations and how cultures that are devoid of biblical truth uh, cave into fear, and it has horrible consequences in terms of those cultures and civilizations. But in contrast, the cultures... As, and the individuals that make up those cultures have quite a different approach to life because they understand uh, your word, they understand your grace, and that gives us a confidence individually, which builds to confidence culturally, and we're no longer motivated by fear but motivated by love, the desire to serve you, and we have courage to face the issues of life and the challenges of life. Help us to trust in you, to memorize promises so that we can uh, constantly have victory in the battle. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.